I'm kind of like that old country preacher. You heard the old country preacher who, who would use a lifesaver as his timer as he would preach. He'd, every time he'd get ready to preach, he'd stick a, t- a lifesaver in his mouth. And as that lifesaver would wear down, he knew it was time to bring his sermon to an end until the Sunday that he just kept going on and on and on. And after a little while, he realized it wasn't a lifesaver. It was a button that he put in there. <laughs> And uh, I don't want to be that way with y'all today, so that's, I was setting up my timer so that I can know uh, where we are and, and, and how much longer I have your attention so that you don't get, get too sore of sitting there. But this morning, we are going to look again at Confidence Unveiled. We're going to look today at David's courage. And I've thought through the week, and I thought, you know, they may appreciate knowing uh, how my mind works. They may appreciate understanding how I study. So I'm going to give you a glimpse this morning of how I study. So now I know when you leave and you go to Facebook and you start talking about what you've learned at church today, that you will be saying, well, our pastor showed us veggie tales. And I wish I could tell you that I learned about veggie tales when I had small children, but that wouldn't be a lie. I was listening and watching VeggieTales in Bible college, because that's the kind of Bible college I went to. You know, we, we did VeggieTales as our study. No, I'm just kidding. But, but I just wanted to throw that in. So we're talking about David and Goliath. I wanted to throw that in there today. And, and if you're astute in, the, in your Bible knowledge, you caught some things that the, the smaller audience would have missed, like him saying, can't you just play your harp while I throw things at you? Saul throws his spear at David several times. There toward the end when he said, with God's help, little guys can do big things. And he jumped up on what would have been Saul's throne there in the tent. So we've got David. There's all kinds of force. You, know, you can learn some things from VeggieTales. Well, this morning I wanted this to start there to make us think as we move forward because we know this story. Even those who did not grow up in church know this basic story. Sports commentators, for example, will use David and Goliath to introduce a story involving a grossly overmatched underdog. They should have done that yesterday. (laughs) When my wildcats had to face the Crimson Tide. What we remember from this story is a shepherd boy defeated a mighty warrior. What we remember is a boy with a sling, not a slingshot, there is a difference, but a boy with a sling took down a heavily armored giant of a man who was wielding a sword, a spear, and a javelin. What we remember is David did not wear armor. We might even remember parts of the conversation that took place between Goliath of Gath and David of Judah. But do we remember important details of of why this narrative is important for us today. If we can't apply this moment in Israelite history to our lives, then it is nothing more than a good underdog story. And we have to be careful, as I talked in between services with another church member just a little bit ago, we have to be careful about how much we project ourselves into a story. Because let's be honest, David and Goliath is not about us. Well, it is, but it isn't. 
So today, I want to talk to you for a little while. We're going to walk through the story. If you have your Bibles, open to 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you pull that up on your phone, go ahead and click on 1 Samuel 17. We're going to walk all the way through the 51 verses of this chapter, but we're not going to read them all. So you can relax, Chuck. I'm not going to read the whole thing, all right? We're going to do some summary as we go. We're going to point out some principles as we go. And then at the end, I've got three observations I want us to make. At, uh, about what we've studied today. Verses one through three tell us that the battle lines have been drawn. The Philistines are on one side of the valley. The Israelites are on the other side of the valley. The Philistines had, and I guess I need to determine, are we going to be Philistines or, or are we going to be Philistines today? It'll be both. I don't want to leave anybody out. The, the Philistines have been the biggest threat to Israel since the time they took the possession of the promised land. In fact, it was a fear of and the battling of the Philistines, the reason they asked for a king to be uh, called for them. Soon after Saul became the king, he led the Israelite army to drive the Philistines out of the foothills of Judah, and now they've regrouped, and they are raising the stakes. You see, if they were to defeat Israel in this particular battle, there would be a natural path into Israel for total conquest. In fact, Bill Arnold says, much is at stake in the conflict, so much so that the peace and prosperity of Israel's future can be said to hang in the balances. I'm not naive enough to think that there aren't some people here today You've walked through these doors, you've walked into this worship center this morning, and you've got things going on in your life that you feel like causes your life, your prosperity, your peace to hang in the balance. There's a message for you today that God's going to share with you, and it may not even be the words I have to say. It may be something that the Holy Spirit, and I pray it's something the Holy Spirit says to you. So this morning, uh, as, as we walk, walk into this passage, I want to remind you, as a, as a guy who was born and raised in Kentucky and understands horse racing, I'm going to encourage you to put on blinders this morning. Put on spiritual blinders to shut the world out for just a few minutes so that you can be focused on what God has for you in the next 30 minutes or so. There's characters that we find in this passage. Within chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, we find Saul, who is a a God-rejected king of Israel. He was rejected by God because of his unwillingness to recognize the authority God had on not only his life, but the life of his people. He, he decided a couple of occasions to do it his way rather than to follow what God would have him to do. So God has now rejected him because he can't tolerate a king who is supposed to represent God himself to the people. He, can't, he cannot tolerate that sort of a king, so he's rejected. We have David. David was anointed by Saul last week when we studied uh, chapter 16. And at this point in the narration of of Israel's history, there is a great difference between Saul and David. If you go back to chapter 16 and start in verse 13, we read, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. We studied last week and we learned that David was empowered by the power of the Holy Spirit. The very next verse 
is often missed. We don't always flow right into it because of the heading that's in our Bible. We read a section at a time, and if you get to the end of chapter or verse 13, you finished that section, but then there's a new subheading. But if you go on, we just read that the Spirit rushed on to David, but look what it says about Saul. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. You have a God-chosen and anointed king who is empowered by the Holy Spirit. You have a God-rejected king who is now tormented by an evil spirit, a harmful spirit. We have Goliath in this story. He's a Philistine warrior. In fact, he could be called the Philistine warrior. We have the Israelite army. We have the Philistine army. We have Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. And though he's not mentioned directly, we have Dagon, the god of the Philistines. We have a train. No. No trains in this story. So we have the two armies. They're poised for battle. Goliath is described as a champion. He's a giant of a man who is covered in bronze armor, a coat of mail. So so think about when we think about... uh, the knights of the round table, and they wear that, that intertwined little loops of metal that are put together into a, a garment they wear under their armor. That's a coat of mail. Goliath's coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. I thought about asking, do we have anybody who weighs 125 in the room? But y'all really wouldn't want to answer that question, so we'll leave that alone. 125 pounds, he's a giant of a man, able to wear that. He's covered in bronze. He carries a spear that has an iron head on it. That iron head weighs 15 pounds. And on top of that, he had a shield bearer who went before him. Now, my guess is that shield bearer struggled to find a job after this particular day. Probably had trouble getting hired because of gross incompetence in his last job. You'll see about that in a little bit. Each day for 40 days, Goliath would issue a challenge. It tells us in verse 8 of chapter 17, he stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Now, in Israel's history, this idea of having a champion fight in your whole, st- whole army's place where one champion would go out and not the whole army. That is not culturally what they had done. This is a new idea to them. The Philistines had done this. Of course you would do this. If you've got Goliath as your champion, you're going to do that. You're going to say, I'm not going to take any risk on anybody else coming in. You know, no chances that they're going to get to our king. I'm going to go ahead and say, let's send out one guy. Let's send him out. Well, Saul, being king, should have been the champion, the automatic champion of the people of Israel. In fact, you remember, though Goliath is so big, Saul was the biggest of them. If you remember what he's described as being head and shoulders taller than everybody else. 
It still wouldn't have been a fair fight, but he was the tallest and should have been the most warrior-like person among them. Saul should have accepted the challenge on behalf of Israel. But instead, we read in verse 11 that when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The king is scared. The people are scared. And it's because the people follow the lead of their king very much like people follow leadership in front of them today. There's a principle here that I think we have to pay attention to. Others will be influenced by our faith or lack of it. You ever consider your faith being an influence on other people? Your faith being something that would draw other people to God? Your ability to give God praise and worship even in the hard times of your life? Have you considered that that is an influence on other people? How about your lack of faith? How about your unwillingness to turn to God in moments? You're trying to do it in your own power. You're trying to do what the culture says you ought to do. So you are unwilling to show your faith, and then people are influenced by that as well. I think about parents and grandparents with kids and grandkids. You ever watch a mama with a toddler, that little child just beginning to walk, and that little child is walking across the floor and he or she falls? What's mama's immediate reaction? (gasps) Crying ensues while dad's sitting there and he goes, you're all right, get up. And child just gets right up and moves because that child is being influenced by the reaction of mom and dad. I know that's a very simplistic illustration, but the principle carries on. If our children do not see our faith on display in front of them, they will struggle to display their own faith. This particular Saul of chapter 17 does not seem to be the same courageous Saul of chapter 11, even though it's the same guy. You see, in chapter 11, just after Saul had been made king, he led the army out against the Ammonites, and they had a great victory. But now he's afraid. And as we read earlier, the reason he's afraid, I believe, is because the Spirit of the Lord had departed from him. Apparently, Saul had forgotten the promises of God. Apparently Saul had forgotten what God said to the Israelite people through Moses back in Deuteronomy chapter 9 as they were ready to come into the promised land. It says in chapter 9 verse 1, Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go into dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know, And of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire, God is is talking about himself, he is Yahweh your God. He doesn't just say he is your God, he is specific. You're going into this country that's filled with all these other nations that will have all their own other gods. You have come out of a nation of Egypt who worshiped all these other gods. And there can be no mistake, the God of Israel is specifically named as Yahweh. He is your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you so that you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly 
as the Lord has promised you. Saul has forgotten. God has made promises. He didn't only make promises, he fulfilled promises. Remember, he told them, these great cities fortified to, to the sky, you're going to go and you're going to defeat these guys. Remember, the walls of Jericho came down. They marched around and there they fell. How about all the different ways God had provided himself? Saul has forgotten that God had promised. And and here's here's my principle here. I don't have this on the screen, but I think you need to get this. The further we move away from God, the easier we forget what he's promised. The further we move away from God in in sin, the more we are going to forget what he has promised to do for us. David is about 19 years old at this time. Come on. He's about 19 years old at this time. The Israelite custom is you have to be 20 to serve in the army. So Saul, or excuse me, David is not old enough to be in the army. So verses 12 through 22 explain that David was going back and forth from his father's house to the front lines, going back and forth, taking food, taking brown bag lunches to his brothers, to his brother's commanders, bringing, I think, I think there was an idea there, you bring the food, these cheeses and so forth to the brother's commanders, and they know it's from those brothers' family, then maybe there's some, some good things happen for those brothers. They're, but he's bringing it back and forth. And one day while he is there, he's made his way to the front and somewhere in these 40 days of Goliath coming out and making his, his, his uh, a challenge, David is there greeting his brothers. Here's what it says in verse 23, as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. Don't miss this. And David heard him. David sees the reaction of the Israelites. He sees their fear. He sees the great distress. David hears and sees Goliath differently than the others. His perspective is shaped by his relationship with God. His perspective is shaped by the being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. His his perspective is shaped by he understands who God is to the people. Goliath isn't calling out the army of Saul. He isn't defying the armies of the living God. He is defying God himself. We need to pull over here and give just a little cultural context. Nations, all nations in that area had their own deities. We understand that all were false gods except for the God of Israel. However, the other nations didn't believe that. The Philistines thought Dagon, their God, was just as real as Yahweh was to Israel. The nations that surrounded Israel, we can go to other scriptures and see this pointed out, they believed that Israel's God was stronger in the hill country while their gods were stronger in the plain or in the valleys. It is not by accident that the Philistines are lined up in front of a valley. They think Dagon's got a better chance there. It was also cultural to believe that the winning army in a battle was victorious because of their God. So if the Philistines were victorious, it was because of Dagon. If the Israelites were victorious, it was because of Yahweh, their God. And David gets it. Goliath is not insulting and defying Saul. He is insulting and defying Yahweh. 
So David approached Saul in verse 32, and he says, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant, speaking of himself, will go and fight this Philistine. And of course, Saul gives him the usual, you're too little, you're too young, you don't have the right training, he's been a soldier since his youth, there's no way, there's no way I'm going to send you out there because if you lose, I'm not going to be a servant of these people. So, it's, so he gets all of that. But in verse 34, David rebuts and he says to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father and when there came a lion or a bear and it took the lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. Listen. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. This uncircumcised Philistine He's pointing out that he is not one of God's covenant people. God has made promises to his covenant people to protect them, to deliver them, to do what they need to do in order to be able to get where they need to get. And he is not one of them. Goliath is not part of his people. He is a pagan who bows to powerless idols. Goliath is nothing more than another bear or lion in the life of David. So David goes to meet Goliath. He goes to meet him with weapons of a shepherd. He has a staff. He has a sling with five stones. Now again, it's a sling, not a slingshot. Maybe if you were, when you were a kid, you had a slingshot. Shane, you might have had one. You put a little marble in it, you put a little rock in it, you pull it back and you let it go and it goes about 20 feet and falls, right? That's not what this was. This was a long piece of leather with a pouch on the end where you would put the rock and you'd swing it over. Almost like Edward talked about the yo-yos, remember? He would swing it and when you would flip it, you'd throw that rock out. Scripture teaches us in Judges chapter 20 verse 16 that how accurate these guys were. It says, among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Any left-handed folks in the room? I'm one of them. Come on. That's right. You're special in the eyes of God. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. He was dead on accurate. Now, let me pull over for a second and mention the five stones. There has been teaching over the years that I've heard, and perhaps you've heard as well, but there's really no biblical evidence to back it up that he picked up five stones because Goliath had four brothers. David had no way of really knowing that. He didn't have Google. He couldn't jump onto Bing and say, how many siblings does Goliath have? He wasn't like that. He was a shepherd boy out in the field. He would have had no, no knowledge of that army in particular. What I believe, and we can't miss this, is David's prepared. He's not going to go out and presume on God how God should take care of what God has promised to do to him or for him. God has given him the courage. God has given him the spirit of the Lord to go out and to do this battle. But he's not going to tell God how to go about doing it. There's, we know the story. We'll get to it in a minute. He didn't need all five, but he was prepared. He had all five just in case. This sling would throw a rock at somewhere in the vicinity of 60 miles per hour. They were accurate up to 220 feet. David had no intention of getting so close to Goliath that his heavy 
cumbersome, deadly weapons would come into play. He's going to fight him from a distance. Friends, we need to learn from David. We get too close to the darkness. We get too, too concerned on how close I can get to that edge without falling over it. How far can I go this way without falling into temptation? How much can I watch that? How much can I look at that? How much can I drink that before we're falling into temptation? And that is not at all what David did. He has no intention of getting close to Goliath. He's going to stay away from his weapons. We need to learn to do the same. So Goliath did his trash talking, and David responded with the facts. Verse 45, David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day, The Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and of the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. We know the outcome. Scripture, the way it's worded, sounds like Goliath lumbers toward David. Goliath, excuse me, David runs toward Goliath, sling in hand. He releases a stone that sinks into his forehead, and Goliath drops like the proverbial rock face down. In verse 51, then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword. It would have been Goliath's sword because David didn't have one. So when it says his sword, it's Goliath's. He took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. This is a Bible story. Anybody says the Bible's boring, hadn't read it. This would be PG-13 in today's movies probably. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. Now, as we come to a close and we start moving toward our observations, I want you to catch some things. Remember the order of things. The champion represents the army, which is empowered by that nation's deity. So Goliath and David represent their kingdoms and their deities. Dagon for the Goliath and Yahweh for David. David has said from the beginning that Goliath was defying not the army of Saul, but the armies of the God of hosts. Goliath was defying Yahweh. And I have a question. Do you remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 5 when the Philistines took, basically stole the Ark of the Covenant? Y'all remember that story? They took it, and as, and, and as one of their uh, trophies from battling with the Israelites, they take the Ark of the Covenant, which, by the way, is a representation of the presence of God, Yahweh, and they take it into their, their temple of Dagon as an offering, and they put it before their statue of Dagon. Remember what happened? They come in the next day, and the, and the, the statue was fallen over in front of bowing to Yahweh. They come back the next day. They stay standing back up. They come back in the next day. He's fallen over again. His hands have broken off, and so has his head broken off before the presence of Yahweh. David is the representation of the army of Israel. He is the representation 
of Yahweh. And now their champion, that representation of Dagon, is once again headless in front of their people. They must have a short memory. They must not have thought about what God had done to their God beforehand. They forgot about the headlessness of Dagon, and now their champion is headless. Couple of, three observations. These are on the back of your bulletin if you're a fill-in-the-blank person. First off, don't miss this. David's courage was from God. David's courage was from God. In fact, Bill Arnold tells us David was motivated by the zeal for God and his faith in God's character. He was alone in his confidence that Goliath could be defeated since apparently the entire Israelite army believed otherwise. His conviction that God would defeat the Philistine aggressor made it possible for him to stand alone in the face of overwhelming odds. What kind of odds are you facing today? What's going on in your life? Maybe it's friends, maybe it's family standing against you, maybe it's at work, you're having to make a hard decision, maybe it's a health issue and you've, you've got this un, uh, overwhelming odds of your health going on, you don't know how it's going to turn out. But we have to be careful applying the principle that faith in God will lead to overcoming all our giants in our lives. Because there are some things that it is not God's will to pull us out of. And that's hard. That's when, that's, anyway, that's when you start asking those questions, God, where are you? You said if I would pray to you, you said if I would ask you, you said if I could ask anything in your name, you said all of these things, and now I'm asking you for this, and it's not happening. How is this possible? We have to be careful that we don't presume on God to answer our prayers the way that we want them answered. We need to presume on ourselves that our heart be changed to accept the will of God in our life. Sometimes it's not our faith that's on display. Sometimes our courage is actually ramped up by our pride. Our motivation is our own agenda rather than the opposition that is facing God at that moment. J.D. Greer said, real courage does not arise from the assurance that we will never encounter trouble. Courage is not the absence of strife or the absence of fear in the midst of strife. Instead, courage comes from having a priceless and secure treasure that strife and fear cannot threaten. That treasure is Jesus Christ himself. So David's courage was from God, but secondly, God is glorified by our spirit-powered activity. Don't miss in verses 46 and 47, then he said, I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give your dead bodies of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. Why? That all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know. So not only the earth around, outside of Israel, but even the army of Israel will know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. The battle is the Lord's and he will give into your hand. We have to remember that we need to be able to say to those around us, we don't always do what society, we don't go after fixing our problems the way society would say to fix them. We don't go after those things the way society says it ought to be done. We don't use the weapons of this world like Goliath did. The Lord will fight our battle. And they will know that in this house there is a God. 
They will know that in this church there is a God, and his name is Yahweh, and we, we trust him and we follow him. David recognized the defiance against God, and he moved into action. Bill Arnold says again, all of us benefit from learning from the text that God's, God grants victory over his Goliaths and that our faith and actions are key to the battle. I said earlier that uh, as I was driving in this morning, my mind was running through the scripture and it was, I was massaging it a little bit in my mind and I thought, you know, as I got to this point, I was thinking about saying something to the effect of faith doesn't stay on the couch. But we have church members who being on the couch takes faith because of the health issues they're going through. So that's not always a good illustration. They, it takes all the faith they've got to make it through the day with the health issues they have going. But for those of us who are able-bodied and we're not dealing with those things, faith doesn't sit on the couch. There is no faith without obedience, and there is no obedience without our faith. We have to be willing to be active Our spirit needs to be at one with God's spirit so that we can do what he's called us to do. Thirdly, Jesus slayed the ultimate giant. J.D. Greer pointed out again that in this story, our best interpretation and application is to recognize this story is pointing to Jesus as David, not as us. Like I mentioned, we, we talked in between services and a church member brought to my attention the idea that we sometimes put ourselves in the story too much. This is about God. This is about Jesus. He slayed the ultimate giant. And as we said last week, kings were anointed ones. That's a little, little ilm Messiah. That's what Messiah means. They were anointed ones. They were to point the way to God the Father. They were to point the way and show the authority of God over their lives. That's what they were supposed to do but they were pointing to the ultimate Messiah who would defeat our ultimate giant, sin and death. He's done that for all of us. And David David conquered his giant by himself, just like Jesus conquered the power of sin as our substitutionary atonement by himself on the cross. No matter how tragic our current situation, no matter what you're going through, that giant is not your problem because Jesus took care of it. Jesus slayed it. We can be sure the the conquering of this ultimate giant gives us confidence in conquering all of our smaller ones. We do not have to fear death because Jesus removed the sting of the grave. We don't have to fear rejection in our relationships, our earthly relationships, because we can know because of the cross, the one who matters the most, our God and King will never reject us. We have to have a forward-looking perspective of what the gospel does for our lives now. It's not all about sky in the pie, or pie in the sky, by and by, one day walking streets of gold, and, and all those things are great, and all those things are true. It's about right now that we can walk with Jesus, that he can help us defeat our giants. It's all a matter of perspective. So as we close this morning, as our band comes I want to ask you, what has God moved you to do? What has God been calling you to do? What courage do you need to take care of whatever issue God has pointed out in your life? Because it takes courage. First, it takes courage to admit to God he's right. 
and repent of that sin. Maybe you have never in your life repented of your sin and asked him to be the Lord of your life. You never made him your boss. You never asked him to control your life. You've never surrendered to him to be the controller of your life. You've never asked him to forgive you. Maybe you have never been saved is the church word of saying that. You can be today. Because Jesus slayed that giant. All you have to do is accept it. We're going to have ministers down front. We're going to have T down here. We're going to have Taylor down here. And if you think, I need to accept this work of Jesus on the cross in my life, I know that I need a Savior, you can come tell that to one of them, and they will walk you through it. Or maybe you're a lady, and you say, I would rather speak to a lady. I'm more comfortable talking to a lady. T's wife, Jackie, is down front. You can come talk with her. But the most important thing you need to do is talk to God today. This altar's open. Whatever he has said to you, whatever the courage is that you need to do, whatever he's asked you to do, the best thing about it, he not only calls you to do what he asks you to do, but he then empowers you to be able to do what he's asked you. You just got to step out. You just have to have that faith.